You're listening to Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. It is. Have you noticed what fun it is on television to go to McDonald's? Have you noticed how they sing at Burger King? There you go there. You know, there's a bunch of truck drivers standing in line, you know. <laughs> and uh, so you, you always feel you always feel vaguely like nothing quite comes up to your expectations. You hear about a movie, you know, and you, you can hardly wait to see it. I mean, Pauline Kael writes 19 pages in the New Yorker on it. It's a milestone. you got to see it. Judith Christ, you know. But it comes right out and cries right on a page there for you. It's unbelievable. You could see it in halfway through the second reel. You've forgotten what it was about. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus, and this is the second hour of our salute to one of this generation's greatest storytellers, Gene Shepard. Although his past remains somewhat murky, coming out next year is a book about the art of Gene Shepard, authored by our next guest, Eugene Bergman. As Jim Clavin says on his website, FlickLives.com, Gene Bergman's book does not list the events of Shep's life, as would be done in a biography, but tries to introduce us to the art of talking as only Gene Shepard could master. The book covers Shepard's work in writing, television, and film, and attempts to answer why we learn so much just by enjoying Shep. And we're going to touch on the book in just a second. But, of course, I want to thank my executive producer and research assistant who helped put this together. We've been working on this show for a month or so. And, of course, our engineer, Tom Morosky. So the book is entitled Excelsior, You Fathead, (laughs) and is compiled of dozens of interviews with people who worked with Gene Shepard and others who were influenced by listening to him. Welcome to 21st Century Radio, Eugene Bergman. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. I just can't wait to read your book. I really can't. Uh, I've heard, uh, I mean, I've read a a chapter or two of it that you sent me, but boy, there are so many things. Now, I understand that you were one of the first to begin taping Gene Shepard's shows off off the radio. Was that in 1957? That was in 56. 56. Yes. Uh, a, uh, a friend in college said, hey, there's this fantastic guy that uh, talks on the radio. Mm-hmm. And at that point, he was talking from 1 in the morning till 5.30. And I said, oh, that's too late for me. But a little while later, uh, a friend said, you know, now he's on Sunday nights from 9 to 1. And that's when I began uh, listening. Um uh, and and indeed taping. Um, my parents had a had a tape machine, uh, good old seven inch reels, and I began taping uh, the shows. Unfortunately, one of the things that people used to do, if they only knew how sad it is to know about it now, they would they would tape a show and, and then maybe listen to it once or twice, and then use the same. Mm-hmm. At that time, rather expensive tape and tape over it yeah. for uh, the new program. So a lot of the stuff uh, got lost that way. But I did have, uh, I retained about a dozen reels of uh, seven-inch uh, tapes from '56 through uh, uh, the one as late as '63, and that was my main uh, early uh, period of listening. Well, what encouraged you to write a book dealing with the art of Shepherd? Well. 
uh, someone uh, suggested that they were going to write a biography. And I thought to myself, this is almost impossible because Shepard was so good at obscuring and deceiving in terms of what his real life was about. But I said to myself, gee, the important thing about this guy, okay, so you like to know about the life, but the important thing is the extraordinary art. He's a genius, especially on the radio, but in, in his other fields, enormously talented. And uh, I began making notes uh, as to the different uh, areas that my book might, uh, that, uh, that were important uh, in Shepard's art. And eventually uh, I found I had enough uh, material to uh, uh, inspire me to uh, put it all together. This obscuring that you, that you mentioned, uh, was it intentional? Absolutely. Um, he, he, uh, he would almost never give you the same biographical information twice. And, and, and what's interesting is that uh, many interviews uh, with him in, that were published in uh, major uh, periodicals in, in the Times or uh, the New York Times or anywhere else. You see these pieces of information given out as facts, and you knew that Shepard gave him this information. And, of course, they didn't check on him. They just mm-hmm. assumed this is basic information. It must be true. And uh, now that we know a little bit more about his life, we know that uh, a lot of those pieces of information are total hogwash. <laughs> yes. Well, look, when I was first introduced to him, I, I heard a show about 10 years ago on somebody's old-time radio program. Uh, I don't know where it was, but I heard a show, and I thought I didn't even remember the guy's name. And so for years I kept asking, you know, there's this guy that tells stories, and, and nobody, nobody gave me any information on it until I bumped into it again, again by accident on old-time radio about three or four years ago, because I always mixed him up with, uh, with uh, Henry Morgan. Aha. Uh-huh. They, they knew each other's work and appreciated it, although at times uh, they would take little jabs at each other. Really? Oh, yeah. I know. I've, I've heard some of the Henry Morgan tapes, and, and of course, Henry Morgan uh, was responsible for destroying a lot of his own work a lot of these artists did unfortunately uh-huh. do you think that they destroyed the shows that they didn't think were good is that is that what do you think they did well i don't think uh uh shepherd uh destroyed his own work uh, at least uh, certainly not early on in fact uh on more than one show he claimed that he uh, kept uh, tapes of uh, every single show he ever did that's let's hope we find that archive eventually well uh, one of the um things that we're all looking for is uh, some of the earliest stuff. Um, nobody has yet come forward with a tape that uh, is from the overnight period. Hmm. And uh, as people refer to it, the, uh, the holy grail of such uh, broadcasts would be when he first suggested uh, the hoax about uh, a book called I Libertine, which is a fascinating story. Oh, you've got to tell us about this, because obviously I'd like to get my greasy palms on a copy of that book. Well, I have a copy that he personally uh, autographed for me. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but yeah. at the time, uh, uh, he, he uh, and again, uh, you have to realize this is the way he tells the story. You don't know if the details are exact. Uh, he says that he went into a bookstore looking for a book that he knew that he knew existed, 
mm-hmm. but the clerk could not find it uh, on his list, his bestseller list, or any kind of list of published works. So the clerk told him it couldn't exist because it wasn't on our list. Uh, so um, Shepard got really incensed, and he um, he suggested to his reader, uh, to his listeners, one very late night. This again, as I say, was the overnight shows. And the basic uh, details we know are correct, that this is what happened. He suggested that uh, his listeners create a book, uh, a title, and an author. They created the uh, title I Libertine by an author who was a um, supposedly an expert on 18th century English erotica <laughs> named <laughs> Frederick R. Ewing. Oh. And uh, everybody should go out and ask for the book. Yeah. Well, if one person went out and asked for a book title and an author and uh, the clerk couldn't find it, the clerk would assume that, uh, well, he got the title or author wrong. But if people all over the city and all over the eastern seaboard were asking for the same book by the same author, eventually uh, the powers that be would think, gee, this book must exist. Mm-hmm. Well, the story is that uh, people started talking about the book at cocktail parties, claiming that they had read it. Uh, one uh, columnist, major columnist for one of the big New York dailies, um, in one of his uh, columns, claimed that he had had lunch with Freddie Ewing yesterday. Um, somebody who worked for the uh, uh, Legion of Decency in Boston as a, as a joke, put it on the list of prescribed books, thinking that someone would catch it. Well, it wasn't caught, and it was published uh, along with the other books. Uh, that is, the list was published that said, uh, you can't read this book. So, in effect, uh, I Libertine was banned in Boston, and it didn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> I think you mentioned it was also uh, on the best-selling, uh, New York's best-selling list, and, well, and it wasn't published? Um, this is what Shepard claimed, and this is the story. However, uh, I uh, I took a look through the microfilm of old uh, New York Times, and I, I couldn't find it. Mm-hmm. However, uh, there was a major story in a magazine called Saga. I don't even know if that still exists or not. I don't There's think a so. a big uh, story about Shepard and I, Libertine, only a couple of months after the book came out. And claiming that it had sold uh, something like 200,000 copies, mainly in paperback. Now, if it did, that's definitely a bestseller. On the other hand, if Saga got that information from Shepard, yeah. <laughs> what, uh, what uh, could I take it with a great assault? Yeah, you'd certainly have to do that because I, I, with no guidance from anybody, about three or four years ago when I started listening to his tapes, I believed everything he said. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> he just he convinced me. Literally, I believed everything he said. And then, of course, after you listen to many tapes, you get to see he doesn't tell the story exactly the same. So, you know, who's really telling the truth? When we return with our guest, Eugene Bergman, I want to ask you who possibly could have influenced the work of Gene Shepard. Our guest this segment is Eugene Bergman, author of the upcoming book, Excelsior, You Fathead, The Art of Gene Shepard, containing interviews with people who worked with Shepard and others who were influenced by him. Check flicklives.com for announcements of the publication due in September 2004. Of course, September is the finest month of the year because that's my birthday. We'll be back with our guest, Eugene Bergman. 
Hi, this is Raul J. Cedar of the Harp Tone, and you're listening to the 21st Century Radio. This program tonight is not for the faint-hearted, it's not for those of you who, you know, who... Oh, yes, we constantly get others uh, continually saying, Well, Mr. Shepard, I can't understand why there are so many nice people on your station, and you have to say such, well, such bad things all the time. Well, I don't know. I, 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 I just don't know why that is, madam. I, I, I'm going to try hard, but it never works out. But nevertheless, a little news item came in the other Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Our guest this segment is Eugene Bergman, author of the upcoming book Excelsior, You Fathead, The Art of Gene Shepard, containing interviews with people who worked with Shepard and others who were influenced by him. Check FlickLives, F-L-I-C-K, Lives.com, FlickLives.com. For announcements of the publication due in September 2004. It's probably the best date that they could release that book in September is September the 16th, 2004. Let's see if Eugene can possibly do that for us. We'd greatly appreciate that as a birthday present. Well, Eugene, um, you know, uh, obviously, Gene Shepard may have influenced a billion and a half people, but who possibly could have influenced him? Well... He uh, occasionally would talk about it. In fact, he, he once uh, commented that he'd received a question from uh, some some college asking for his influences, and, and he said, um, quoting here from one of the transcripts in the book, I mean, you know, if you want to be really pompous, uh, if you ask a guy like Mailer, Norman Mailer, he'd come up and tell you, well, I was influenced by Herman Melville and Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre. And then he says, well, I just don't know. Uh, I don't, that's just not what influenced me. And then he would go on to, for example, suggest that it was uh, comic books or Smokey Stover, the uh, comic strip. Or he once uh, went into quite a bit of detail and said Field and Stream magazine. Uh, but to be a little more serious, uh, one of his big influences uh, that he would read stories by from on occasion was George Aid. George uh, an American uh, humorist of the early part of the 20th century who uh, was very uh, witty and sardonic and always had uh, morals in his, uh, in his little stories. And, in fact, uh, Shepard edited and wrote an extensive introduction uh, to a book uh, of uh, George Aid's work. So I'd say George Aid is probably one of the major influences on Shepard. Well, he had. You mentioned he had a some kind of a friendship of sorts with Henry Morgan. Well, I'm not quite sure if it was a friendship. Uh, uh, there were times when uh, uh, Shepard would say, "Oh, I never listened to Morgan. Uh, he was not broadcast out in the Midwest." And at other times, he he said that he really appreciated um, uh, Henry Morgan's work, um, but he definitely said he wasn't influenced by him. But uh, you never know. They they traded a couple of jibes uh, back in 1960. They were both interviewed in a magazine called The Realist, uh, which was an underground newspaper. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, uh, in each of the uh, interviews, they uh, they commented about each other, uh, not in too complimentary a fashion. He was uh, was he friends with Bob and Ray? Because I've seen a well, photograph with them. Actually. Uh, 
I only recently found out that uh, while Bob and Ray worked in the later years of their uh, radio life, uh, at WOR in 1975 at least, while Shepard was still there, and I, I talked to uh, one of Shepard's producers who said, oh, yes, they, uh, they were friends. They would uh, talk uh, over the water cooler in the office. And, in fact, she provided a photo I hope to have in the book that shows um, uh, Shepard, Bob, and Ray, and another unidentified person uh, having beers uh, in a New York restaurant. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, Bob and Ray and Shepard are all big talkers. And it's just coincidental, I'm sure, that in this particular photo, which Shepard is doing the talking and the other two are listening. <laughs> yes. Now, did, he, uh, did he ever comment on Arthur Godfrey? Uh, because, you know, he, he had that same ability to, like, like Morgan and, and Bob and Ray, to make you think that you're the only person that they're focusing on. Uh-huh. Well, it wouldn't surprise me, but I have not heard any. Uh, I've heard about 500 of his broadcasts, and uh, it, it, the name does, hasn't crept up in any of those first 500, mm -hmm. but yeah. you never know. Well, of course, Godfrey did a little ridiculing of some of his sponsors at times. At least he put them up to question. Now, the very first Broadway play I saw uh, in New York, uh, well, that's where Broadway is, <laughs> was A Thousand Clowns, which starred yeah. Jason Robards in, in the movie. Uh, what, what is the possibility that the person Jason Robards played was modeled after the life of Gene Shepard? Well, I think there's no question, but there was influence. First of all, Herb Gardner and Gene Shepard uh, were friends in the late uh, 50s and into the early 60s. They wrote introductions or, or liner notes to each other's uh, books and records. They dedicated books to each other, etc. And uh, among the other things, uh, one of the things that uh, the Jason Robots character does is the equivalent of hurling an invective. Now, what Shepard used to do is ask his listeners to set the radio on the windowsill facing outward, and and then Shepard would yell out something, Oh, like you crook, we've got you covered. Don't make a move with some such thing. Uh, well, uh, or, you know, what are you doing out there, you people? Why don't you do something productive? You know, that kind of thing. Well, uh, Jason Robards does basically the same sort of thing a couple of times in the movie. Uh, also, one, uh, one of Shepard's favorite pieces of music is, uh, yes, sir, that's my baby. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's a scene in which Robots and his uh, uh, young nephew sing and, uh, and make music to, uh, yes, sir, that's my baby. And another one of Shepard's uh, little songs that he would play when he was making an ironic comment was Stars and Stripes Forever. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, again, is... Uh, is heard uh, from time to time in the movie. So I think uh, definitely there was a relationship there between the character and Shepard. And Shepard supposedly, when he saw this play, said, they've stolen my life. Mm -hmm. And I've heard now from two sources, from both Jules Pfeiffer, the cartoonist whom I interviewed, and uh, um, Paul Krasner, the uh, publisher of The Realist, they both told me, as had been acclaimed, that uh, this incident uh, ended the 
friendship between Shepard and Herb Gardner. Mm, mm, pretty serious, huh? Well, do you think he's, these hurling invectives, that must have been extraordinary. I remember when one of the tapes he's talking about, uh, well, someone mentioned that they found out that that the when he was they were hurling invectives i've forgotten what it was that they the person downstairs uh, who who uh, listened to on the radio was a, a neo nazi or something along those lines <laughs> so for the first time people got to know who who listened to gene, <laughs> to gene i think that was i think that was paul krasner on the uh a national public radio uh, two-hour tribute uh, said that. I believe you're right. Yeah, yeah. I believe you're right. Now, do you, do you think these hurling invective shows influenced the popular 76 film network? Well, that's another. Uh, that is uh, indeed another uh, very good possibility. Uh, the um, the newscaster uh, in network is uh, is sort of losing his mind. He's he's just not keeping it all together and he's mm -hmm. getting worse and worse mm -hmm. and i can't remember the exact wording he uses but he he suggests that his listeners uh open their windows and yell out something to the effect that it uh, this is getting worse and worse and i'm not going to put up with it anymore yeah i'm mad as hell and i'm not going to take it anymore right yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh shepherd claimed that uh patty chayefsky the uh script writer Called him and asked if he would mind if that indeed was uh, used in the movie. Uh, well, whether or not that's true, uh, we don't know. But uh, it certainly seems uh, like an influence. Well, among Gene Shepard's many associates and friends in the village scene in the 1950s was Jack Kerouac. Now, here's a little clip of Shep memorializing the work of Kerouac in October of 1969. Whereas Kerouac was a guy who dug just everything he dug uh, he dug the the climate he dug the uh, landscape he dug the sky and he was a positive writer in other words his work was pro-life and uh, around about the early 60s there was a sudden change in literature and it became anti-life in general most of the literature today that is famous literature is a put down of one kind or or uh, a put down of life primarily a feeling that life is all hopeless, and there's also a great element of uh, negativism that runs through it. And, of course, this was uh, almost the antithesis to the Kerouac attitude, which was a digging attitude. I got in the mail just out of the blue. I was operating by myself. i just come out from the Midwest, and I was working late at night and sweating it out, a transmitter out there, and working what I could do best and writing for the voice. And one night I came in, and there was a letter there and a package. And it was the manuscript, not really the manuscript, but the galley copy of On the Road. And there was a note in it from Kerouac, and it said, uh, I want you to read this. I, I uh, think you might dig it, and incidentally, you're one of the characters in the novel. So I read it, and I immediately, uh, this was before it came out, I recognized it for what it was. It's a genuinely, uh, I think, a, a, a turning point in a lot of writing and a lot of attitudes in America. I think it did a great deal. And I think in 25, 30 years or more, people will rediscover Kerouac and you'll have an actual, his real place in uh, literature will be finally settled on. I think Kerouac uh, uh, has direct antecedents in people like uh, Thomas Wolfe and possibly even Whitman. And uh, his, his digging qualities come through everything he writes. But I read this and I remember sitting in the, in the corner house 
the Rikers Corner House at 57th and 6th Avenue. And I had just read this, and I had it still with me in, in, a, in a sort of a tacky briefcase I was carrying around. I had carried my lunch around in it. And uh, I had this thing with me, and I was sitting with another guy who was a cartoonist. And he, uh, uh, he was from New York. And I said to him, I said, he was trying to do a little writing, and I said, I think you'll find this, this is really going to make an, a lot of noise, this novel. This one here. Well, it sure did. Uh, you know, obviously we're getting, we're not going to have enough time for a lot of things I wanted to ask. However, I want to make sure uh, that I ask you uh, about the meaning of the title Excelsior, You Fathead. <laughs> that's the title of your book that's going to be coming out. Right. Well, uh, Excelsior um, I, has several different uh, references in, in Shepard. Uh, every so often when he would mention it, he'd bring up another uh, uh, relationship to the word. But I believe it basically comes from the Longfellow poem um, in which uh, a young idealistic man goes uh, tramping up uh, a hillside uh, in a blizzard with uh, a banner that says Excelsior. And to me, uh, I think uh, Shepard felt that this was uh, idealism taken a little bit too far for no good reason. And I, I think uh, Shepard got a kick out of uh, the silliness and the human foibles behind somebody who could do this. That is, uh, uh, without really thinking something through, uh, not that you shouldn't be positive, but without really thinking it through, assuming that everything was going to come out just fine and you were going to charge ahead anyway. Mm -hmm. And uh, Excelsior, you fathead, was, is a phrase that uh, is an extension of just plain Excelsior, and it uh, was the way you uh, greeted a, 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 fellow, uh, a fellow listener. Mm -hmm. So fathead was both saying... Oh, you dummy, but also it was done with affection. Mm -hmm. So Excelsior, you fathead, has this contradiction within itself of onward and upward, you dummy, but you're a good friend, uh, and I really like you. Yeah, well, that tells me a great deal about Brother Gene Shepard. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I want to thank you for joining us, Eugene Bergman. Great, the author of the upcoming book, Excelsior, You Fathead, The Art of Gene Shepard. Hopefully, it will, well, check flicklives.com for announcements of the publication, which is due in September 2004. Wow, I can't wait to hear, read that one. Hey, when we return, we will be joined by Max Schmied, who hosts his own old-time radio program and provides a catalog of Shep's films and radios for sale. Hi, this is Bobby J of Frankie Lyman's Legendary Teenagers, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Monday, the wind is blowing out of the cold, frozen north. And we're struggling on our way to school. Me and Schwartz and Flick and Bruner wearing our sheepskin coats, wearing our helmets with the goggles. <laughs> the snow is up to our you-know-what. And we're struggling on our way towards the Warren G. Harding School when one of those perennial kid myths was brought up.
Now, the idea of a believer and a non-believer almost always has to do with mythology. One of the myths that we discovered that uh, was always uh, prevalent as a kid was the tongue myth. And the tongue myth said that if the weather was cold enough, your tongue would stick to this thing and impossible. You could not get it off. When Flick walked up, I will always remember Flick for this. He walked right up to that telephone pole. He stuck his tongue out. And he had a standard kid tongue, you know. He stuck his tongue out, and he looked around at Schwartz and says, all right, watch this. He stuck his tongue out again. He laid it on that. He says, they don't, that's all kid talk. Ah, your tongue don't stick. He stuck his tongue out and zap. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio, our homage to radio personality, author, and performer Gene Shepard. If you don't have a computer or know what an MP3 is, then you need to find a ready source of audio cassette tapes of Shep's works. Once again, FlickLives.com comes to the rescue and introduces us to our next guest, veteran broadcaster and programmer Max Schmied. Max Schmied came to WBAI in New York in 1978, and by December he had been handed the reins of the Golden Age of Radio, which he has been doing ever since. He first started collecting radio programs in 1967 after seeing an ad in the back of a comic book fanzine and buying some reels. Max traded and purchased shows for 10 years and then brought his collection to WBAI. His other program, Mass Backwards, began in the mid to late 1980s, and on it he regularly plays excerpts from Gene Shepard Classics. As a matter of fact, Max is actually taking a break from his program on the air tonight, right now, to join us for this interview. Welcome to 21st Century Radio, Max Schmied. All right, good evening, Bob. I, I, one correction right off the top. We play entire Gene Shepard programs on Mass Backwards. Forever and ever? Well, for about five years or more now, but it's it's not excerpts. Uh, we do the whole show, well, commercials I, and all. Oh, well, thanks heaven, thank heavens you do. Now, when and how can our listeners hear your programs, Mass Backwards and the Golden Age of Radio? Well, if they're up at 5.15, which is when they start usually, mm-hmm. unless we're doing a, a longer segment, uh, they can tune in in the New York City area at 99.5. We're on WBAI, or you can listen on the World Wide Web. Uh, the link is on our webpage, WBAI.org. And uh, Jim Clavin then tapes them and has them available online at Flick Lives for several weeks after the broadcast. So they can be heard uh, well after the fact, and I know most people are probably not awake when I am forced to be awake and down here. <laughs> well, when I used to serve newspapers in the morning, I wish I would have heard them. How did you first come in contact with the works of Gene Shepard? Well, I, unlike uh, most of the other guests this evening, was not an original listener. I think I caught Shepard only once when he was actually broadcasting. Uh, I came through to him through collecting. I was putting together a catalog of uh, old radio programs, and I had just come into some reels of uh, the syndicated half-hour programs that they did in 1976. I assembled uh, a dozen cassettes of that, and uh, they were the thing in the catalog that got people excited. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I proceeded to track down more programs through uh, some of the early Shepherd websites. There were a couple of others before Fleek Lives. 
And I was put in touch with uh, a fellow named Bob Kay, a jazz pianist who was also someone who taped Shepard in the early 1960s. Mm-hmm. So we traded. I got involved with other people who were trading, and uh, the collection grew. Well, it's been estimated that he did about 5,000 broadcasts. How many of his programs have you been able to acquire? Well, I just did a count of what's listed in my catalog, and I have just reached about 1,000 programs, and I have a few hundred more waiting to be cataloged and fixed up and just waiting for me to have time to deal with them all. Well, do you think uh, there are many more in existence? I know of caches of shows uh, uh, that I cannot crack, try as I may. There's a professor in Vermont who has some very rare material from 59 to mm. 61. And a uh, guy out on the West Coast, a lot of people taped them in New York and then moved around the country. Some shows have come in from Alaska recently. And uh, a fellow in Texas, but, you know, they were all taped in this general area. Well, that's just extraordinary that they won't uh, lend you a helping hand here. Uh, Maybe, uh, well, when I set up the Gene Shepard Foundation and get that grant to go seek out the material, perhaps uh, I'll have more clout than some of these folks. (laughs) Well, it must be quite an adventure checking and finding out, finding the, the locations of these things. Now, you're in the process of converting your cassette collection to CD format. Uh, how can our listeners obtain a copy of your catalog and and what your and, and tell us what your cassettes cost? Well, a lot of the uh, catalog is online at uh, my website, which is oldtimeradio.com. That's uh, all lowercase, all one word, oldtimeradio.com. There's a link to the Shepherd catalog, but of course I have no particular web skill, so it hasn't been updated. Uh, you can go to the website, oldtimeradio.com. Now, as you are aware, this is the 20th anniversary of A Christmas Story. I think it's a brilliant piece of satire. Why do you believe that this film, above the other films, uh, uh, some are even better, in my opinion, has become legendary? Uh, I would say it's got to be those repeated plays. Mm-hmm. Because uh, as I rank them, I put it about fourth of the six Shepard movies and hey, you know, give us, TV shows. Give us your rankings of these. I'd really appreciate uh, that. What's number the one? The Star-Crossed Romance of Josephine Kosnowski is the top of my list. Mm-hmm. Then it's a toss-up between The Phantom of the Open Hearth and The uh, Fourth of July. Then A Christmas Story uh, and the other two uh, we won't even talk about. <laughs> the other well, two were okay. Well, I certainly my favorite, of course, is the Fourth of July one, uh, because I just love fireworks. That's one of the reasons why I like it so much. Uh, uh, now, there's and, another lost Shepherd uh, program. After he left the radio in 1978, he ended up on New Jersey Public Television, and he did a half-hour show called Shepherd's Pie. Yeah, which combined elements of his travelogue, uh, Gene Shepherd's America series, as well as some of his radio. Bits, but he did it all on a bare stage. He had a stool. There was a curtain in the back, and this was like your classic cable broadcasting, but you know, with real genius in front of the camera. And he just made it work. There are about eight of those that have survived. How many? At this point, only five of them are actually viewable because some of them are still sitting on uh, ancient two-inch master videotapes oh. waiting to be converted to a viewable modern format. Oh, yes, I can't wait to see. I mean, I can't just, unfortunately, I just can't get enough of this guy. Uh, Bob and Ray, before him, Bob and Ray were 
you know, I listen to them about uh, 10 hours every day. Uh, but uh, by the way, do you know anything about their possible relationship, uh, friendship, or anything like that? Uh, just the picture that uh, just the picture, <laughs> that huh? Gene came up with. Mm-hmm. They did work at WR together at the uh, the late uh, portion, you know, just before they all got thrown out with the format change. <laughs> I think Bob and Ray lasted a little longer than Shepard. Yeah. Oh, they were extraordinary. But, they uh, were extraordinary. Now I mean, there it, there has been con- con- a little bit of controversy over what he did to prepare for a show, and and I think he in part is responsible for telling one story, and it might be another. Could you could you analyze or relate this? Uh, this particular situation as to how did he prepare for a show, if he did? Well, I've heard one fellow claim that he was a writer for Shepard, and I find that utterly ridiculous. Really? Hmm. Uh, Shepard prepared by reading the newspapers. Uh, I suspect he had some notes, but, uh, you know, and a, and a pattern in mind when he went in. He knew where the beginning and the end was, and I think he just did the rest by, you know, his radio magic. Well, I never thought he would... Uh get to i get to the point uh near the end he usually drew it all together so well well i think that's where the music comes in when yeah. someone is there standing by to cue your music with two minutes to the end of the show that means you've got to wrap it up well one of the individuals that i i guess he protected a great deal was his uh, i guess it was his third wife um, or Lee. fourth, or, depending or, on who's counting. Yeah, well, I don't. <laughs> I only know. I only know of three. Uh, but there was one individual. Uh, her, her name was uh, Lee L E G Lee Brown. Lee Brown. She's a presence on the program from the early 1960s. She was his producer. Yeah. Uh, and apparently they were together most of that time, but they didn't get married until just about before the show went off in 76 or so or 77 they got married mm-hmm. finally yeah i think it was march we're 2nd together to the until to, she died well just about every program whether it's been tv or radio she she's in there somewhere oh yes and and uh several as a matter of fact didn't she have a film or didn't she do a i'm trying to remember she did a book she did a book, didn't she? Yes, I think the, I think e. someone Brown? came up with a book uh, about a horse or horses that mm-hmm. she had written. Mm-hmm. But she was also listed on, as producer in most of his uh, radio, I mean, movies and, and television, as well as radio. You... And I, she was his constant companion and sidekick. She, uh, she took notes during the program uh, at three- to five-minute intervals so that there was a record of the program. She even gave them star ratings, which uh, I oh, have wow. on a couple of original WOR master tapes, and I think one of them had her notes, and uh, a few of them had the star ratings on the programs. Mm-hmm. And she was also there for him to yell at, which he seemed to do. He did that than, a lot. That's... More than once on the air. <laughs> yes, I know. Honey, stop that chatter. You're distracting me in here. Yeah, what are you guys looking at in there? You know, uh, they would say they were looking at some bugs crawling up the wall or something like that. What Was Shep the same person on and off stage? This is what I've heard. It, apparently, when he would go into turn-in work at the Village Voice, the owner would just, uh, his heart would sink because he would regale everyone from the minute he walked in until he left and prevent anyone, anyone from doing any work. And apparently, this is the way he was uh, at dinner dates and uh, anywhere else. He just uh, liked to liked to talk. Mm-hmm. He yeah. liked to talk. Mm-hmm. Here's an interesting fact that I think... I mean, this is this is my uh, theory. Uh, the limelight shows that he did 
which was a Saturday night, Saturday night live program. He, they, they had a, a club in the village called the Village Limelight. And Saturday nights from sometime in 1964 till 67 or so, he did live shows, which were broadcast. And I'm convinced that he was using these as a writing workshop because many stories, like the leg lamp story, I heard a version of that, and it's almost identical to what ended up written down. Yeah, that He did do sense. a program once saying that uh, some writers just would uh, narrate uh, and then have someone transcribe what they spoke, and I think this is how he wrote a lot of his material. Who, who do you think uh, Gene Shepard influenced? Oh... Several people who work here at the radio station, I know, are interested in doing radio programs because they were Shepherd fans. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, just lots of average people as well that I hear from all the time. Well, what do you th what do you believe are Shep's greatest strengths in his in his storytelling? Hmm, that's an interesting one. Strengths in the storytelling. Well, I. It, what I'm amazed at is his mastery of, of the radio art. He's just so good in front of a microphone, and I guess that stems from his uh, great ability to tell stories and well, wrap up and get off on time. Indeed. Uh, you know, one if I, I have a very difficult time. I mentioned this a little earlier, but I have a very difficult time trying to remember whether I read his stuff or saw it or listened to it. Because one just bleeds right into the other. He creates pictures in your head. Yeah. And, and, he... and, and there is a show where he talks about the, the art of creative writing. And he basically says that it's a, it is like a narration, mm -hmm. or at least his style. Which is why I believe that you know often he would, if not transcribe the radio shows, he would work closely from just what poured out of his mouth when he was on a stage and then turn that into the written works. Oh, here's speaking of the, the 20th anniversary of uh, the Christmas story. I have a precursor to that, a limelight show, with an early version of uh, the Christmas story. And you know what he says? What he says? This will shock people. The Red Rider gun is for wimps. That's not the model kids wanted, and then he names a totally different model. <laughs> so even he would edit himself, and yes. the stories would change. There are some stories he told over and over, but. Never the same lengths, never the same details, mm -hmm. always little changes. Uh, he, he was he was a genius. Well, before before I discovered FlickLives.com, before I was able to purchase a number of tapes from you and go to MP3s, etc., I really, uh, I, for about two or three years, I believed everything, <laughs> everything that he said or uh, wrote or or uh, produced in, in, in a visual form. And uh, it, it took re repeated listening for me to realize that the, that, that obviously wasn't true. Oh, no. But he was so convincing. You know, uh, that, that's the kind of thing, Max, that I, I as far as genius goes, uh, I don't think we have anything like that in the radio anymore. Uh, well, it's because of the commercial limitations. When you have to inter be interrupted every four minutes to play spots, mm -hmm. I mean that's what I think that's what drove him off the radio. Yes, in the, in the first place was that the show just got so loaded with commercials and so full of interruptions that you know at the end they were taking old tapes and just cutting them, inserting the commercials, and you know he didn't bother too much towards the end. 
Well, that was like a, the end, I guess, was uh, in the spring of 77. What, was he fired or did he quit? I've got several different stories from his program. Uh, well, you know, you get you get fired and you say you quit. I think is uh, I think they were just changing the format and he was yeah. swept out the door. Yeah, I think yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm paying a little attention to my program and Oops. in the background I hear the shepherd oh. theme All coming right. up and going out. Well, thank you for joining which us. Which means that I've got to run. Yeah, Max, thank you for joining us. Hopefully you can join us again in the future. Uh radio broadcaster Max Schmied of Mass Backwards and the Golden Age of Radio on WBAI in New York City. And on, if you want to purchase some of those tapes, go to his website, oldtimeradio.com, or write to him at Post Office Box 3449, Astoria, New York, 11103. Thank you very much, Max. Okay, there he goes. He's gone, gone back to work. I'm telling you, friends, what... This particular individual, Gene Shepard, has changed my life considerably in so many different ways. And I wish we had time to, but we will be doing other other shows on, on Gene Shepard. And there's so many little cuts and segments that I'd like to think we got time for the classic Mom BB gun block. Let's take a listen to that one. I could feel the Christmas noose beginning to tighten. Maybe what happened next was inevitable. Ralphie. What would you like for Christmas? Horrified, I heard myself blurted out. I want an official Red Rider carbon action two-inch airways ball air rifle. No, shoot your eye out. Oh no, it was the classic mother BB gun block. (laughs) You'll shoot your eye out. That deadly phrase uttered many times before by hundreds of mothers was not surmountable by any means known to kiddom. But such was my mania, my desire for a Red Rider carbine, that I immediately began to rebuild the dike. <laughs> I was just kidding. Even though Flick is getting one. I guess I just like some Tinker Toys. I couldn't believe my own ears. Tinker Toys? She'd never buy it. BB guns are dangerous. I don't want anybody shooting his eye out. Well, we certainly wouldn't want something like that. By the way, Jim Clavin, FlickLives.com, and Eugene Bergman... Yes, Excelsior, you fathead. That His book should be out in September. I'm going to be the first person in the world to buy that one. See you next week on 21st Century Radio. Zohara will be here. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner. I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus. And remember, shine your shoes and get a haircut.